You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class. And what that really means is I'm not going to be offering basic meditation instructions. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. Um, we've been going through the Manual of Insight, which is the new translation of the Mahasi Seda text on Karnaka Samadhi. Karnaka Samadhi uh, means momentary concentration insight practice and is widely known in the West as noting practice. So um, we're in the development of mindfulness and we're talking about um, realizing mind. <clears throat> the method for contemplating the mind is the same as the method for awareness of external internal phenomena previously explained in the section on contemplation of the body. When one notes a state of mind, one sees that it instantaneously arises and passes away. This realization of the arising and passing away of mind. This is the realization of the arising and passing away of mind. One also realizes that a particular state of mind arises only in the presence of such conditions as its specific mental factors, a physical bias, past actions, delusion, and attachment. Without these conditions, that state of mind does not arise. This is a realization of the cause of states of mind that are arising and passing away, as described in the Pali passage. He abides contemplating mind in its nature of both arising and vanishing. Every time one notes a state of mind, one realizes that there is no person or being, no I or mind, no woman or man that knows, but only awareness of an object. In other words, one is able to perceive the mind independent of conditioned conceptual things. Thus, as mindfulness and insight, knowledge improve and attachment weakens, as stated in the, the Pali passage, or else mindfulness that there is a mind is simply established in him. This is the contemplation of the mind. Um, so, in, another way of considering that is... Uh, uh, often in, in the West it's described as awareness of awareness. Have you heard that? So what we're trying to begin to do is separate awareness from uh, consciousness. In, um, in Theravada Buddhism, um, consciousness is the, the uh, sensing experience as it arises and passes. So you have the object that can be sensed, you have the capacity to sense it, and when there's contact, the consciousness of that sensing experience arises, which awareness knows. When the object is no longer in contact with the sensing experience, then the, that specific instance of consciousness ends, which awareness knows. Um, I was thinking about this this morning. Um, one of the aspects of awareness that's, that is a quality that's unique from consciousness is that it's timeless. So uh, in this process of distinguishing between um, consciousness and awareness, if we think back on the past, 
and what our experiences of, of that was, we can often mistake the, that experience of timelessness as uh, uh, what consciousness was. Or we can mistake uh, awareness for the experience of self uh, as we remember it. When you think of yourself as a five-year-old, do you think of it as a continuous, ongoing activity of self that it has an intrinsic nature to it? That you are, in some sense, the same person that you were when you were five years old? Or is it that the, the timeless quality of awareness is what you remember, and that actually if you explored the conscious experience of what it was like to be five years old, it's completely different than what it was? What, what it is like now. Is that making sense? You don't have the cognitive ability as a child to think these thoughts so that they would not be something that you could have done then because the, the whole structure of the brain would not have allowed you to do it. And yet you can think now reflexively of that experience of being a child in a way that you uh, were, was impossible for you to do at the time. Is that helping? <laughs> um, I find... I think part of it, I need to sit a little closer. Um, yeah, I just... Just, oh, oh, just, just because of the, there's like an echo or something. Okay. So, if we watch the experience of consciousness unfold, you have the capacity to sense the object that can be sensed when they meet the consciousness of the sensing experience arises, but it arises in a process. First there's the sensing, then there's the quality of the sensing experience. Um, and that's what we call the ultimate reality, just pure sensing with no attachment is the English translation or no fixation. Um, Sasaki Roshi used the, the term fixation. You don't fixate the sensing experience into anything. So you have the, the sensing experience and then you have the sensing aspect of mind which then recognizes the pattern of the sensing experience and then through the process of perception of the sensing experience it's compared to your database of previously sensed objects and if there's a match, then the meaning of the previously sensed experiences attaches to the sensing experience in the moment, and that's the uh, process of attachment or fixation. Then the pattern of sensing in the present moment uh, is accompanied by the remembered uh, experiences of that uh, pattern of experience from before. And then uh, it follows through a process that ends in volition, which is the decision-making process of what to do in response to that sensing experience. In the Pali Canon, there are, I think, 52 different distinct mind states that you could begin to examine uh, one at a time if you wanted. In Vipassana, for instance, the V of Vipassana means to divide and Vipassana means to see clearly. So you would pull apart all of these different strands of experience that come together to form the fixated experience or the mental object of the sensing experience. And it's also there that uh, defilements uh, can attach to the thing that you make. 
So uh, I often talk about it as you have the sensing experience and then you have the thing that you make out of the sensing experience. Then in the process of meditation, it's useful to, to touch into the ultimate experience and then touch into the conceptual experience, back to the ultimate experience, then into the uh, conceptual experience. And in, in that back and forth process, you can begin to evaluate different kinds of mind states. <gasps> Hello. Hello. How are you? I want you. <laughs> you have to grab a chair. Okay. All right. What page are we on? This is page 108. Yeah. I'm auspicious. <laughs> <laughs> Better listen. <laughs> talk about the development of spiritual maturity as a recognition of the, the of mind states or the, the evaluation or the, even the recognition of mind states then this movement between touching into ultimate experience and then into conceptual experience this back and forth process is useful because it tends to reveal the mind state the mind state really acts as, as a filter uh, so the ultimate experience, the pure sensing experience, is filtered through the mind state, and then the, the quality of the mind state is infused in the mental objects that we make out of the sensing experience. If we know what the mind state is, and we, we have a, um, a practice where we examine the mind with the mind state absent and the mind state present, we can begin to recognize in the quality of the mental objects that we make out of the sensing experience uh, what mind state has been infused into them and to begin uh, to recognize in experiencing ordinary uh, reality uh, at, uh, and uh, see in the way that it manifests what the mind state is likely to be. We can then evaluate our own mind state and we can evaluate somebody else's mind state by the way that they represent the, the shared experience of the present moment. Um, and in recognizing that our mind state is different than the other person's mind state, we can begin to notice the effect that their mind state has on our, our mind state and the effect that our mind state has on them. Is that making sense? If you talk about that in terms of uh, child psychology, at a certain point in the development of the child, they, they begin to recognize that their mind state is separate from their mother's mind state or their father's, whoever their caregiver's mind state is. And what that opens up for them is the understanding that I can have an agenda that's different than my caregiver's agenda, which then builds the foundation for being able to explore what's meaningful to you, independent of the mind state and the, what's meaningful to your caregiver. So if you had a caregiver that instructed you in this, you would have known this very early on and it would have afforded you in your ability to explore what's meaningful to you. And if you didn't have that as a child, 
you would not have developed that and uh, you would have developed something different than that. If you're unaware that uh, there's a sensing experience and a thing that you make the sensing experience into, then you don't actually engage in a process of evaluating whether the thing that you've made out of the sensing experience is an accurate reflection of the sensing experience. Um, this is would be called unconsciousness. If you ever met somebody who's largely unconscious and surprised by the level of distortion that they can get into. Um, so this, in terms of the practice in life, as you're taking this out into the world, this constant back and forth is really useful. This is what I'm sensing, this is the thing I've made it into, is the thing that I've made it into an accurate reflection of what the sensing experience is. When the Buddha talked about this, he talked about it, or the metaphor that he used was a mirror, and 2600 years ago, a mirror was a bowl of water. So, a dark bowl filled with water. That we don't experience anything directly. We experience consciousness is the um, expanded, let's say, uh, nature of sensing. So, in that, that bubble of consciousness is the sensing, is the quality of the sensing, is the thing that we make the sensing experience into, which awareness knows. And when the object is no longer in contact with the thing that can sense it, um, then that whole process of making that sensing experience into something collapses and passes away, which awareness knows. In some sense, you could say that a liberated mind is a mind that is in awareness and not trapped in consciousness or that there's a freedom to come and go from consciousness into awareness. But most limited uh, sphere of consciousness. That makes sense? <laughs> How, what, what exactly did the Buddha say about the mirror? So, if the mind is clear and equanimous, it's as if the water were still and clear, and so that when the sense ex experiences reflected off the mind, which is the surface of the water, the mind is the surface of the water. it represents an accurate image of what the world is like. If the mind were filled with craving, it's as if the water were dyed a bright color, and so the mind being the surface of the water reflects the sensing experience, but infuses the image of it with bright colors. So it intensifies, craving intensifies. If the mind were um, filled with aversion or hatred, anger, it would be as if the water were boiling. Uh, we all know how distorting intense anger can be in terms of what's actually happening. If the mind is sleepy, sloth and torpor is the traditional translation, then it's as if the water, the surface of the water is overgrown with algae. If the mind is restless and agitated, it's as if a breeze were causing a rippling across the surface of the water. And if the mind were filled with doubt, it's as if the water were muddied. Doubt, in, in the Buddhist sense of doubt, is not all doubt. It is simply doubt that the, the, the path as described by the Buddha will, live to, will lead to liberation.
Um, so these five hindrances um, are also mind states that you can track, um, whether they're present or not. Um, the mind states that I was describing as a sort of gauge of spiritual maturity is that you recognize that you have uh, a mind uh, that's separate from other people's minds. That you, uh, you, this is really a, a basic understanding of the nature of conditioning. We don't um, experience the world, uh, uh, we aren't designed to experience the world the way that it is. We are designed to experience the world the way that it means uh, itself to us. Um, so that we experience what it means, not what's happening. And your, your conditioning is the thing that defines all of those definitions of meaning. And so uh, you could walk into a room and there could be a huge bowl of strawberries there and your conditioning would be, oh my God, a huge bowl of strawberries. I love strawberries. I can't wait to eat strawberries. But if uh, strawberries taste like soap to you, you might look at it and think, ah, strawberries, I wish there was something else. It doesn't mean that the strawberries are different, right? It just means that you're conditioning your, your uniform. I should usually really use cilantro as, this, as the, uh, the thing, because for a lot of people, cilantro tastes like soap. Um, and people put it in guacamole, and it's hard to detect. <laughs> what we want to do in our meditation practice is begin to pay attention to this process of sensing, the quality of sensing, and then the thing we make it into, and whether the mind is equanimous or the mind is uh, filled with a particular mind state. And then what we want to begin to do is uh, examine how, depending on what the mind state is, affects the way that we make the world appear to ourselves and the, and the way it makes um, uh, our self appear to us. Do you know on some days you think, oh my god, I'm, I'm the next best thing since sliced bread, and on other days you don't think too highly of yourself? Have you ever had that varying experience? Um, so that would suggest that actually there isn't a single solid ongoing intrinsic uh, valuation of self that all of that is based on the conditions of the present moment. And that's really what we want to understand. That we create in each moment the picture of the world and the picture of self based on the conditions that are in the present moment. And so the more accurately we can perceive the conditions of the present moment, including what the mind state is, um, the more our volition, which is the end of this process, the the, the quality of the action that we're going to take is more skillful. That's really the whole process of this. To be present uh, for the, what we can know and know how accurate it is. If you look at this, um, this process of uh, developing mind uh, or mind states uh, for spir spiritual maturity, Knowing that you have a mind state that is different than other people's is good. Knowing whether or not you're accurately forming the experience of self and world 
from what you're sensing is useful. Understanding that your mind state affects other people and other people's mind states affect you and being able to track how that is. Um, if you love somebody deeply and they look at you with anger, how does that affect your mind state? If they look at you in a, a rejecting way, how does that affect your mind state? If they look at you lovingly and nurturingly, how does that affect your mind state to be able to track that? To know that they have an agenda which is different than your agenda and that they're entitled to explore what's meaningful to them as you are entitled to explore that. If you don't, uh, and some, what's interesting about the development of all of this stuff in terms of ordinary humanness is that if you had a skillful caregiver they would have taught you all of this in the way that they interacted with you. Uh, maybe uh, they didn't know to teach it to you so they didn't. That's, I think, the most likely explanation for why we don't learn it, is that we had a caregiver who actually didn't know it themselves, and so they weren't able to instruct us in it. Um, the good news, of course, is that you can um, learn it now. Um, the bad news is that in learning it now, you'll see all of the times in your life when you acted without knowing it and that may have caused complications that you, you weren't necessarily required. Um, let's see, that seems like five of them. One, two, three. Oh, the sixth one is called meaning-making. If you learn as a child to explore what was interesting and meaningful to you, then what you tend to do is organize your life around things that are meaningful to you. And if you didn't learn to do that when you're, you were a child, what you may notice is that there's a constant uh, a deprivation around meaning, that you find yourself engaged in activities that actually don't mean that much to you. And so part of this process of learning to explore well and learning to discover what's meaningful to you will allow you to shift your life so that the majority of the activities that you engage in actually have meaning to you. And that relieves the, the sometimes uh, despairing experience that people have and also relieves the, that critical, I think, self-talk that uh, is endemic in our culture. When I was sitting on retreat a couple of weeks ago, I was reminded by the teacher that um, uh, during one of the early Mind and Life symposiums um, where the Dalai Lama had asked uh, some psychologists uh, what were the great uh, dilemmas in the West to see whether there were uh, uh, Tibetan uh, practices that might be useful, one of the psychologists says, what do uh, what does the Tibetans have, what, what kind of Tibetan practice do you use for um, negative uh, self-talk? And there was a discussion between the translators and between the Dalai Lama for 20 minutes before they turned around and said, we don't know what you mean by negative self-talk, it's not something that, that our culture really has. Um, and so then we begin to understand that these cultural views also exist, and can you see them? In the same way that we look at these, this basic list of mind states, 
um, craving, aversion, restlessness, and agitation, sloth and torpor, doubt, what are these other qualities of mind that come in. I like to talk about Bowlby's attachment theory because attachment theory represents these uh, constellation of mind states that create view. So if you look at the first of the Eightfold Path, right view, is how do you uh, experience or how do you see self and world and can you recognize when a mind state is present and what the distortion looks like um, and can you recognize when it's not there so that when you form the intention and action that you're going to take, you can take into account as you're forming that, that the world and self are distorted in this moment by a mind state. Is that making sense in terms of the, the reason to practice? Could the mind be, I mean, could the world be distorted even with a clear mind? I mean, well, in, in the Theravada Buddhist thought, a, a, a totally equanimous mind is as accurate a reflection of the the um, sensing experience as we can have. Now, of course, there's the possibility that you haven't sensed the experience before so that you don't have any basis uh, for understanding what it is. The process of making a decision about what to do is based on what we did, what we recognized before, what we tried before, and how it turned out. So all of that's built into the perception. In this situation, I've tried this, 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 and this, and that worked out the best, so we'll do some version of that now. If you can't recognize the mind state, um, and you can't imagine a different uh, uh, option or a different strategy, then you're stuck with the habituated uh, uh, trial and error process that you had. One of the things that attachment theory tells us is that it creates a, a view of the world that is masking, and so that a lot of the options that might be available to you in any given moment you don't even recognize are present because of the distortion of the view. So if, uh, for instance, you had a, a childhood that conditioned you so that you would be preoccupied as an adult, you would be constantly scanning for problems in the environment. Um, if your conditioning was such that you grew up to be a dismissing adult, uh, in dismissing adults, idealization is practically the only mechanism that they have, so if there wasn't some way of describing something in an idealized fashion, it wouldn't occur to you to use it. So if somebody came to you with sadness or fear and you didn't value that, then you wouldn't even recognize it as an attempt for a connection. And then you might take an action that was um, misattuned. Do you know all of these different tune, uh, terms? Attunement is, for instance, uh, attunement is where I place my attention on you and you recognize that my attention is there and then you place your attention on me and I know that you're, you're focused on me. Everybody else in the room can easily recognize when two people are attuned. At this distance, I'm unable to read the fluctuation of your pupils and I'm really not even able to read micro-expressions. 
So this is a very a safe distance for most people to be in proximity to other humans. If we were to move three feet apart, then I would begin to be able to decode the micro-expressions of emotion. They flash across your face, and so there would be a more a sense of intimacy in those kinds of exchanges, but also maybe more fear that somebody can read you well. And so you may notice in your own behavior and the behaviors of others that we control the distance uh, of closeness that we get to each other. In order to read the fluctuations of the irises, you have to almost be at this distance. Who do you let get that close to you? Can you count them? Probably you can, because it's unusual to let somebody be this close to you. But the reason we don't let anybody this close to us is because they can read the, the fluctuations of the iris in the eye and evaluate whether we're lying to them or not. Uh, this dance of attunement and misattunement that child and caregiver go through, you, could, you learn to read how they respond to you based on the fluctuations of their irises, and it's all unconscious. So all of this processing is happening unconsciously. And so we have to pay attention to when it arises in consciousness, which awareness knows, because otherwise it remains unconscious. And what did the irises do? They, they expand and, con well, they dilate or, or contract based on the fluctuations of emotion. And so a seven-month-old, although I'm really close to him, it, it, I'm not going to, he doesn't do that yet. Your irises are the ones he's recognizing, oh, oh. not his. And then at what age, when, I guess when he starts to know how to not tell um, well, we're just talking about this, this um, unconscious, empathetic, emotional regulation that develops between two minds, uh -huh. this attunement experience. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm fascinated by the iris thing. Yeah. Between two and five months, um, mm -hmm. I went on a Dan Brown retreat, he's a Harvard uh, neuroscience guy. And they're doing a lot of scans on, on advanced meditators there, but uh, also on attachment-related stuff. And uh, he said that the new scans are showing that infants Im embed a sense of self between two and five months old. So the first understanding of yourself as competent or incompetent comes that early. The reason why paying attention to view is so important is because you're coming into consciousness with a view already in place, right? That sense of how uh, competent or incompetent you, how capable or incapable you are, which comes uh, from, they think, uh, the experience you have of calling out to the world uh, for your needs to be met and then somebody coming and meeting your needs and how well they do that. If somebody comes and, and does a good enough job in recognizing what you need and providing the need for you, then you develop a sense of being capable. And you develop a sense of the world as a place that will willingly meet your needs. But if you grow up in, in an early experience and that isn't what happens, then you develop a sense of yourself as less than capable. 
and you develop a view of the world that is uh, less willing to meet your needs. And then, depending on the specific conditioning of that, you develop these very distinct views. That's why I like attachment uh, theory, because you can describe the views that arise from the kind of conditioning that you had as a child, which makes it easier to recognize them now. And if you can recognize them now, you can begin to uh, take action which is different than how the world may present itself. So the distortion is present. We are not suggesting that you should live a life of no distortion or that intentionally generating mind states is a bad idea. We're not, I'm not saying that at all. For instance, you want to be skillful at generating loving-kindness as a mind state and being able to maintain it. But if you look at the practice of metta, which is the Pali word for loving-kindness, in the way that Mahasi describes the practice of it, you learn to cause the arising of the mind state, you learn to sustain the mind state, and then you investigate how holding that mind state changes the quality of the perception of self and world. Is that making sense? How those actions how actions automatically flow differently from that particular mind state than some other mind state. Wait for Molly to come back. So how does that land for you? Have you do you know much about attachment theory? Um, not a whole lot about it. And you? Uh, learning more and more. I've been reading about it the last seven years. Oh, good. It's one of the main reasons I enjoy uh, teaching. Um, and um, I'm still provoked when, when you when, when you were just saying what you you had a a couple of examples of how you develop a sense of um, competence or right. capability, and uh, you had another example, and I was. You know, it's hard not to think about my own oh, exactly. past while that's going on. That's what I'm, yeah, I think that's a good idea to do. For instance, I'm, uh, I have a lot of sadness um, because I, I'm, I have nine months of dental work to do. And, um, uh, I, and I have to do it because I didn't have orthodonture when I was a, was a kid. I grew up in a wealthy family and I didn't have orthodonture as a kid because my dad didn't want to pay for it. And so I have this sadness around him not taking care of me in, in a way that would have made no difference to him. So. And then I thought, you know what, I have the resources to do it for myself, I'll just do it now kind of how it goes, but there is that, that edginess of sadness around it. Well, I did, did have it and it was quite painful. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and it was quite painful. <laughs> I'm thinking, I have nine months of it coming. <laughs> yeah, I have better techniques now. <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, anyway, that was my, I went to the dentist today sat in their chair. It's, uh, there's a kind of indignity to people poking around. The, the, the dental assistant said to me, which I found 
hilarious. I couldn't stop laughing. She said, don't mind if I move your lips around. <laughs> I said, I can't recall anybody ever saying to me that they were going to move my lips around. <laughs> just going to note mind states. This is deepening your practice. I'm always advocating ways to deepen your practice. Uh, we have a retreat coming up in December at uh, the Seven Circles Center in the Sierra Nevada. I have a flyer out there for that. If you, you don't have a daily practice, we also do a, a morning meditation, which is a live conference call at 7.30. I have flyer 7.30 a.m. I have some flyers out for that as well. We're going to start some intensive classes in March. So we're going to start a level one meaningful life, which is basically um, going through meditation strategies for investigating uh, attachment and then uh, emotional regulation and then also a complete explanation of that. And then we're also going to do a level two practice which is working with a meditation mentor and really going deep into the practice around attachment. And then we're also incorporating for the first time the idealized parent figure uh, meditation protocol which was developed by Dan Brown at Harvard. Mm -hmm which is based on the Mahamudra, which is a Tibetan practice. So uh, visualizing an ideal parent figure as a way of uh, moving the deep conditioning toward secure attachment. So it's been very, uh, it's, I've been doing the protocol myself for the last four months and it's really interesting in terms of uh, repairing it. I, I really begin to think of it as an imagination repair. Um, <clears throat> So take a look at those. I put some bracelets out there if you need a, a transitionary object uh, for your week. Um, the classes here are offered on a Donna basis. The suggested Donna here is $20, uh, but uh, generosity is a practice you do for yourself. So uh, if $20 feels like a good amount, do that. If more feels good, do that. If less feels good, do that. And then next week, uh, I will be here, and then for the two weeks after that, I'll, I'm going to be in New York. So uh, you'll get. If you haven't uh, put your name on our email list to get the bulletins of when we're here and when we're not, there's a, also an email sign up list out there. Is that? Thank, thank you. you. Is that the same as your regular email list? It is. It is. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for coming. Thank we'll you. see you soon. Thanks.